Classic Comics Forum podcast presents issue number 26, Star Wars by Marvel Comics, part 6? Part, wait, part 6? No, that can't be right. Welcome back to the Classic Comics Forum podcast. As always, I'm your host, Scott Harris King, and in this episode, my guest, The Confessor, and I finally conclude our incredibly long, incredibly epic, and I'm sure tremendously entertaining six-part deep dive into Star Wars by Marvel Comics. Over the course of this series of podcasts, we've so far covered Star Wars issues 1 through 94, annuals 1 through 3, We've covered the Return of the Jedi four-issue limited series adaptation. We've talked about the supplemental stories in Pizzazz and also the supplemental stories that appeared in UK Weekly f- exclusively for the British audience. In this episode, we're going to finish up our discussion by talking about Star Wars issues 95 through 107, the end of the Joe Duffy run, the end of the Marvel run. We'll talk about what worked and what very much didn't work as the interference from Lucasfilm built to the point where the series barely even resembled Star Wars anymore and Marvel finally just threw up their hands and canceled the series in frustration. So... Let's just jump right in because the Confessor and I have a lot to argue about when it comes to issue 95. We've been teasing this epic throwdown for right from the beginning, but issues 95, 96, and 97, we get Cynthia Martin unleashed upon an unsuspecting comic book world. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, actually, I think that is quite a good little sort of arc, really. I, obviously, I, we've been, you know, we've discussed before my feelings on Cynthia Martin's art, and you know, you know, I'm not a fan. I have to say that in the first issue of that three issue arc, the sort of the Dark Lady arc, as I call it, um, which is 95, I think the art is actually not that bad. I think it's it Steve Leah Lower doing the i think so yeah that's right he makes sort of you know the best of of her art uh it's still not great i still don't love it but it probably looks it probably looks the best it ever looks in that particular issue one thing we both agree on though is that cynthia martin's new redesign for lumaya who returns in this storyline is is really cool just fantastic new design um i love the kind of everything about it uh, i like the sort of the sort of turban look of her new headdress the like the cyborg look and um the design of her whip which we really see in play in the action sequences in 96 mm. um I, I think i mentioned this before but reading these issues with the design of her whip and her huge cape, uh, I really was struck by similarities to some stuff that um, McFarlane did uh, just a little bit later with Spider-Man's webs and also with some of the huge uh, crazy capes that he and other people were doing with Batman uh, in the late 80s. And um, I just, as much as I appreciate Tom Palmer, 
to me, these first couple issues with this new team were kind of a breath of fresh air. I loved the design. The the action sequences were really interesting. They had a cool um, thing where they had like a split story where Luke fighting Lumaya um, is taking place on half of each page. And then there's a storyline with Leia taking place on the other half. I, I thought the, not just the character design, but sort of the, the storytelling design, it was just really interesting in this first arc. Uh, that's yeah i mean that's an interesting uh, sort of take on it i mean my feeling i think it's a good arc i think i think the story wise i think duffy's still you know there's lots to like in this three issue arc i don't know uh, cynthia might at the time you know I, I my feelings at the time as a whatever i was 13 year old kid reading these comics is the same you know as it is now really i sort of i can see what you're saying but rather than it being a breath of fresh air, I really, it, it, you know, it was like to me, oh my God, the, the, the artwork's gone to pot. You know, it was, it was sort of the opposite, but they, hey, that's, you know, that's, that's. Well, it's fair thing. enough. I mean, um, I do think that her, her art goes downhill very quickly because, and I think it's mainly because the anchor Leoloa, he, if I'm not mistaken, he does not ink all these. And when we get into some of the later no, issues at the right. end of the run, her art um, goes from being, it, it's sort of, it's very delicate uh, line work. Um, and I think Leoloa really brings out the best of that. But later on, without him, it just sort of becomes very crude and simplistic looking. Yeah, I agree. I think Leoloa who I think only works on issue 95 is certainly the only one he's on in this arc. But um, I think he really tightens up her pencils. And that's what I mean. I mean, I, I don't like the art, but I think it's the best that Cynthia Martin's art looks. It largely due, I'm sure, to, to Leah Lowe's inking. Um, I do really like the light whip as well. I think that's a great, that, that, that sort of light whip weapon that, um, Lumia uses, you know, it's sort of half a real whip and half a sort of a, a lightsaber. I think that's a really interesting and uh, very memorable sort of weapon. You know, it looks exciting and it looks threat. That said, I'm not really sure why it causes Luke as much trouble as it does, but um, because I agree. Yeah. I mean, in the story, for listeners that haven't read it, Luke can't gets his butt kicked because the whip is only part energy and part metal physical uh, attack and so he can only figure out how to block one or the other so what he ends up doing by the end of this three issue storyline is he basically basically makes um a miniature like a, a miniature lightsaber like a wakazashi style half blade so that he can dual wield and and fight off both elements simultaneously which looks really cool it just doesn't really make any sense no because yeah, I know. I know the lightsaber really should, um, well, certainly the metal parts and the leather parts, it should have no trouble destroying those. So, yeah, it's one of those weapons that it looks really cool and it works really well in the context of that of that duel. And of course, these issues really, this is the only time we see Luke and uh, Lumia actually properly face off and have a proper, you know, fight. You know, because of later writers, I suppose, mostly um, in the expanded universe, she's considered quite a sort of a, what's the word, like notorious bad guy. But actually within the 
you know, within the sort of marble run as it was happening, as it was coming out, this, you know, we didn't know at the time, but this is really the only time that we see them properly face off. Yeah. And that's, I feel like, uh, like Duffy had bigger plans for her and they never paid off because the series ended so abruptly. Uh, we do see her come back later, um, for a really pointless sort of. Yeah. Pointless is exactly. Yeah. Pointless is how I describe it. You know, those, those other appearances are just, you know, her promise is sort of squandered. I feel, um, after this, you know, she's in this, you know, we've seen her in, was it issue 88, whatever the issue was that she first appeared. And then she gets this really great sort of time to shine in this three issue arc. And then that's really it, you know, that, and it's disappointing, you know, unfulfilling. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of things that happened in this arc that ended up being wasted potential. Um, 95 in particular, but really the whole three issues, it really feels like a whole new direction for the series, uh, which it turns out to be. It's just that for me, I feel like it starts off really strong and then it sort of goes off in the left field and then shoots itself in the head. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Basically what happens in this storyline, other things, major things that happen. And most of the stuff is in issue 95. We get introduced to the Nagai. We get uh, Den. We've already seen Knife earlier, but now it turns out he's part of this whole race. Um, mm. By issue 97, we get this storyline where they're invading from this other galaxy. And it seems like they're going to be the the new sort of big bad guys for the series. That turns out to not quite be the case. Well, that's right. And um, and actually, the other thing to note is, although, you know, we're saying that this, or I'm saying that this this arc is, you know, is this Lumia's or Lumia's time to shine actually den siva is uh is a great villain i think um you know he's a real nasty piece of work you know the way that he's so cruel um and callous and of course he he um he sort of kidnaps danny the zeltron um and basically sort of sets about just experimenting on her for no other reason than just to sort of satisfy his scientific curiosity it's very sort of it's a very dysfunctional relationship because then he sort of starts to fall for her as well but he's you know he's like probing her with these analysis beams that will leave her forever psychologically scarred you know but he doesn't care he wants to take her to pieces and find out what makes her tick uh, but there's also a glee to that yeah there's there's sort of a, a glee to it i mean den den's relationship with danny sort of becomes the focal point uh, of the series um, after this part. we To set it up, though, we get this weird thing where all of a sudden, not completely out of nowhere, as we've covered earlier, but all of a sudden, Kiro and Danny are in love, and this is just like, wait, what? To me, this was editorially mm-hmm. mandated, and I feel like Duffy has talked about how she started being told... Lucas started telling her what she could and couldn't do with her own characters, she had introduced these characters because of the editorial interference with the main cast, and now they started telling her that she couldn't do specific things with her own characters, so now she didn't, couldn't really do what she wanted with anything. And this, to me, like stuck out like a sore thumb, where just out of the blue, these characters are in love, and it's basically used here where Den seemingly kills Kiro, and so to earn you know, Danny's undying hatred but then he kidnaps her and he starts torturing her and they sort of 
develop this really kind of twisted uh, obsession with each other. Um, it's very interesting, uh, but the genesis of it for me with the, with just adding this sudden romance with Kiro just seemed really strange. Yeah, I mean, yes, that whole thing with Dan, the obsessive sort of quasi-romantic sort of you know um fascination with danny or whatever is is great and i i I think den is you know is a great villain but yeah the danny and kira romance it does just come out of nowhere really i mean yes we can look back at i think it's issue 87 still active after all these years and at the end of that it's sort of hinted that there might be something going on but really if that was you know if, if they never actually got together you'd never look back at that it's very you know you'd never look back at that and think ah that looked like it could have been the start of something. It's very vague. So it really does come out of nowhere in this story arc. I agree with that. And yeah, we could have definitely done with a bit more setup. It, it, you know, that's a flaw because we're asked to care about this new coupling uh, and we've not, we're not really invested as readers in this coupling. It, it seems to have yeah, come from nowhere. So the other big thing that happens in issue 95, along with all the other major developments, is we get introduced to a new group of characters. It's the male Zeltrons who show up to be <laughs> Princess Leia's uh, new entourage. Yeah, like escorts. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're basically very, you know, mid '80s characters. They're like right out of. I want to say they're... call them Valley Girls, but they're not. They're they're boys, but. They're right out of that, and they're drawn as though they were right out of uh, the style of the... There's an artist in the 80s who had a very famous style by the name of Patrick Nagel. And to me, these guys look like they were taken right out of a Patrick Nagel poster. And it's very jarring. It's It feels very un-Star Wars, because it's just... It's like they walked right out of a Cyndi Lauper music video into one of these comics. Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's in the Lauper music video is is right. I always think they look like a boy band, and I thought that at the time. Uh, I mean, they look like some terrible '80s boy band, just with pink skin, you know. And they they're in terrible '80s fashion, um, and even the whole reason why they're there is kind of, you know, I, I think if I remember rightly, they're brought in essentially to sort of facilitate, you know, better uh, diplomatic ties between their homeworld um, and the alliance, this new alliance of free planets, which, I mean, it just doesn't, it's a bit of a, you know, it's not a great idea. It doesn't really work that well. The, the only thing I would say is that in their defense, I think that Duffy's brought them in as comic relief and they do actually work as comic relief. At least they are kind of amusing. They, they do sort of work. I could have done without them in the, in the, in the book. It's another example, which we're getting a lot in this period of the series where, the book is being flooded by all these new original characters. No, I, I agree. Uh, when I was rereading the series for the first time since I was a kid, they actually did not annoy me quite as much this time around because there was a little bit more to their characters than I remembered. We do get a little bit mm. of development with some of them over the course of the 13 issues yeah. they appear in. But yeah, it's just really jarring and out of place. The other thing with the Zeltrons, I should just say, is as well that over this arc, and this is related to this boy band, you know, this entourage of, of male Zeltrons that, that Leia's got, is that actually Leia has got this real hang-up about Zeltrons. But, you know, previously we could have sort of said, well, she just doesn't like Danny for whatever reason. But Leia has a real sort of almost pathological dislike of the Zeltrons in in this period of the of the 
you know, of the series, which, you know, it sort of borders on racism in a way. It's, it's what, you know, what is it? It's hard to understand when you're reading it. What has she actually got against this race? You know, and it sort of seems out of character because Leia is, you know, you never think of Leia as being racist, you know, <laughs> but she kind of is towards the Zeltrons, you know. It feels like a holdover from a period in the in the comics where they did not yet know that Leia and Luke were brother and sister because her like intense dislike of Danny. Some of it is because Danny is so flirtatious towards Luke, and so uh, at this point in in the story where we know that they're brother and sister, she really shouldn't have that specific issue, uh, you know. Yeah, um, and yeah, so it comes across as almost being super prudish like she's just so put off by the fact that these are overtly sexual beings that she just doesn't want them around because she just i don't know can't deal with that i don't know but it's it's so weird Mm. it doesn't really make any sense no um and that's interesting actually what you're saying there about the sort of super prudish thing because you know don't forget that luke's reaction to the zeltron's sort of post return of the jedi he seems very much like you know, they're basically offering him sex on a plate. And you know, other than the fact they've got pink skin, these are some good looking gouts, you know, and he's not at all interested. I mean, obviously he's the hero. He's got to be whiter than white, but it's almost like, it's almost like a sort of, um, like he's afraid of their overt sexuality. I'm sure this has to do with Lucasfilm, not wanting any of their characters to have relationships or be portrayed, you know, as sexually active. I'm, I'm, I have a very strong feeling that that's why the, the Danny and Kiro things came out of nowhere is because they wanted, they didn't want the constant flirtation between Danny and Luke. They wanted her paired up with someone else to, to, so that they wouldn't Mm. be showing that. Yeah. Um, and actually sort of later on, so I've read as well, you know, in relation to what you're saying, that absolutely uh, Lucasfilm wouldn't let Duffy do any of, uh, you know, pair up any of her characters. Uh, and even Han and Leia's relationship, I've read, was off limits. She wasn't allowed to advance that and she wasn't allowed to reference it. Now, she did anyway. And she she does reference it, you know, right off the bat um, with that first post Return of the Jedi issue. Uh, and she references it again a number of times particularly in a few issues time when Fen Shyster, the, you know, the Mandalorian super commando returns and there's this whole kind of jealousy dynamic thing going with Han and, and Fen and all that sort of thing. Uh, so she did it anyway, but she wasn't actually allowed to. And, and with Luke, but very, very near the end, there was something on the letters page in answer to a letter that had been written, obviously about Luke's, romantic prospects i suppose i think the answer was well there's plenty more fish in inverted commas in the sea for luke which i've always taken to sort of mean that there may have been some idea on duffy's part that she was going to have him have a romantic involvement with a an iscalonian who who, you know but but the series ended so we never got that but but again, yeah, that, that was, again, if that's the case, then that was against actually what Lucasfilm were telling her to do. So the, I think she was kind of rebellious as well, but she was, yeah, just hamstrung really by, by all these, um, these rules that were handed down, you know. So we've been talking for like 15 minutes about this single arc issues 95 to 97 because it has so much important stuff in it. But there's still one major, major thing that we haven't talked about yet. We probably haven't discussed 
the the single most important thing about this arc is that we have this big shock revelation that Lumire is actually Shira. This is where we learn. This is where readers actually learn that this is, you know, it was last time we saw Shira, she was half dead, floating in a back to tank back in issue um, 60 something or other. I don't know. I can't remember. For me, it came out. No, it was a really big shot. And it's an excellent uh, twist or reveal, you know, um, on Duffy's part. It, it, it's, it's brilliant. It's probably one of the best things she did, actually. You know, she took this character from the earlier David Michelini run and, um, and brought her back as this new dark or dark lady. Yeah, my friends and, and I, it was a big shock. And it was, yeah, it was the talk of the school playground for, for weeks because we we all really liked Shira. You know, Shira was a very popular character with the um, with the readership. And then, of course, she's revealed, well, you know, first of all, first of all, we have this whole crisis where Luke's seemingly killed her, but then it's revealed that, oh, it's okay because she was an Imperial spy. And then right at the end of that arc, we see she's alive. But then years slip by and she's not referenced. And this new Dark Lord comes out of nowhere. But certainly it never occurred to me that that could be Shira until that issue. And that was a real, oh, my God. You know, if you for long-time followers, that was a great payoff and a great reveal, you know. The character had so much promise, particularly mm-hmm. given that background, that it's it's extra disappointing that we barely saw anything of her later and what we did see was completely a waste yeah i agree i agree uh, and really i've not read that much of you know what subsequent writers have done with her but i understand that actually a lot of that potential ended up being fulfilled long after the marvel run had finished in you know other novels and, and whatever maybe role-playing games and stuff like that the other thing about this arc is of course luke finally does agree to train kiro in the force you know there's been this ongoing thing about luke not wanting to to train any more jedi you know because he's scared that he'll repeat obi-wan's mistakes yeah you know and obviously kiro at least seemingly dies uh, at the end of this arc but um but he does yeah because he you know luke does agree that 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 okay kiro's kind of proved himself you know that that he is responsible enough or well balanced enough to be uh to be a jedi or whatever yeah i want to talk about this more when we get to 102 where kiro returns but let's jump to the next arc because for me this arc introduces a lot of great things we get you know lumaya's back turns out shishiro we get the nagai we get den we get this invasion happening like a bunch of really interesting stuff and then everything went completely foobar <laughs> there's there's another three issue arc that was supposed to start in issue 98 something happened and what they decided to do was so screwed up in my opinion that it destroyed yeah, yeah. the rest of the series because yeah, what yeah. they decided to do was they took what was supposed to be issue 98 and they just skipped it so they ran a fill in issue for 98 which we'll talk about in a second then they ran 99 and 100 just as they were and then they put what was supposed to be 98, the first part of a three-part arc, yeah, and published yeah. it as 101 as the last part that happens completely in flashback, which means that nothing that happens in 99 or 100 makes any sense because none of it was set up and there's really no emotional payoff because there's no emotional buildup. There's, oh, it was just, it's so screwed up. I can't even fathom. I think... I th- my best guess is because 100 was like a double sized anniversary issue that they they had set that they had to have the payoff you know in that issue 
So they just decided to take part one when it was late and put it at the end. And it, uh, that's exactly oh right. Oh my God. It, <laughs> that's exactly what happened. Yeah. It's so bad. Um, it's complete. It's confusing. It ruins the story. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just squanders everything that had been set up in this arc. It's so bad. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. Uh, I mean, it's just an absolute mess. I mean, you know, like a car crash mess. I think there are other problems. I don't think that's that's the only thing, but it's just yet another thing that was contributing at this point to the series being, you know, I have to say, actually, my last issue as a kid reading it as it was coming out and my last issue was number 97. So it was the end of that dark lady arc. And I, I basically dumped it then, um, you know, for a number of reasons. I didn't like um, Cynthia Martin's artwork. We had like backup strips that were rubbish like power pack i'm sorry to any fans of power pack <laughs> but i i've never liked them and i didn't at the time i, I like um, power pack but dude, pairing okay. it with star wars doesn't make any sense like no just exactly weird. it was just it was just a weird combination i didn't personally like it the rest of the magazine was being full up with uh, reprints of older stories which I already had in my collection so you were getting about four pages of new content per issue and that just wasn't you know and I didn't really like that content but certainly I didn't really like the artwork in that content anyway so I just ditched it at that point but the reason I'm saying all that is what I'm building up to is I've no idea whether you, you know how out of order all the issues were in in America as oh, they right. came out I, don't, I have no idea whether that was rectified in, in the UK. If you were a UK reader, maybe it all played out in the order that Duffy intended. I have no idea. I, so it, instead of what was supposed to be issue 98, we get a fill-in issue with art by Al Williamson. Um, yeah, so, so it's okay. So it's, it's okay. Yeah, issue 98, <laughs> it's fine. Like It's got some great art. <laughs> the story was just okay for me. But as an, as an issue, 98 is fine. 98, this story is not the problem. It's the fact that it was published. As issue ninety eight, that was the problem. What they, I don't mm. know, I don't know what went wrong. What what would have worked much better is if they printed this, say, where in around issue one hundred and two instead, or one hundred and one. Well, so one thing that is interesting about that, and this is a real nerdy thing, really, but it's set in the shipyards of Fondor. If you remember, there's like uh, they're building all these ships and everything, and the whole uh, story revolves around that. Well, the shipyards of Fondor was something that Archie Goodwin came up with and originated in the Star Wars newspaper strip some years earlier, which he also produced with Al Williamson. And it's interesting, but just from a completely nerdy point of view, because it's really the only time that the newspaper continuity and the Marvel continuity sort of cross over, and they were separate. They weren't you know they weren't actually meant to be intertwined so that's sort of interesting but that's again you know that is that is nerdy but it's the sort of thing that i go oh wow you know well that's the kind of stuff we love here on this podcast so that's great the other thing i would say as well that having our williamson do this issue really makes cynthia martin look bad but anyway that's enough cynthia martin bashing go <laughs> so the main problem with these being uh, published out of order is that issue 101 which was supposed to be 98 it reintroduces Fenshaisa and it introduces a new character by the name of Bay and Bay mm. is this gigantic legendary figure and I always hate it when there's a legendary figure that no one's ever mentioned before <laughs> but he's this he's this legendary warrior and it turns out he's a childhood friend of Han Solo and in issue 99 or rather in issue 100 Bay betrays 
seemingly betrays the alliance because yeah. it turns out he's been working for the Nagai. But then later on, it turns out, no, no, he wasn't working for the Nagai. It was a double, triple betrayal, or it was, maybe it was a quadruple betrayal. I've lost track. But mm. um, none of that really had any kind of emotional resonance because the issue where we're introduced to him wasn't published until after the story as a flashback. And so when you get to 99, Fenshice is just randomly back with no explanation. There's this new character, Bay, who's running around with no explanation. There's just a, a like a editor's note with an asterisk saying, we'll eventually explain this. Mm. Which is and, the lamest thing ever, isn't it? That's not what you want to read as a, 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 as a reader. <laughs> no. And it's just... The only good thing about this entire arc as a result is uh, there's some cool stuff with Drebble in it. Um, yeah, again, which goes back to what we were saying before about his story arc and how it's really interesting. And, it, you know, you know, he wants to do the right thing. And even, uh, you know, he's really buddy-buddy with, with Lando, you know, and he wants to be this rebel hero that he's been decorated with. And I, he has to give back the statue, doesn't he? Because there's this whole running thing about the dancing goddess statue and the minstrel, you know, that's been going on for issues. And I think his rationale, if I remember rightly, is something like, if he didn't give it back to save this planet, you know, he wouldn't be worth the award itself, basically, because, you know, he's now this decorated rebel hero. And yeah, he's a great character. In fact, I think I said before, he's my favourite character, probably, or certainly, certainly in my top three favourite you know, characters that are original to the Marvel run. Yeah, so th that part's cool, but the rest of it falls more than flat. It's just, reading this, I had no idea what the hell was going on, and it wasn't until I got <laughs> to issue 101 and realized that was supposed to be the first part that I was able to piece it together. But that's just that's just not how storytelling is supposed to function. No, it's just a mess. And I can't imagine what it must have been like you know, if you were an American reader at the time, we were still hanging on to the series and, and getting the story coming out in that in that disjointed sort of armor. I mean, the other thing is that none of these issues are that great, really, either. It's not just that they're out of order. I mean, I didn't read them at the time. As I said, I'd already dropped the the, the book. So I just I read these for the first time in, I suppose it was like the mid to late 90s when I was completing my collection, basically. And I just found them really boring. They were they were tough to get through. I, it was nice to see Fen Scheisser back. He was one of my favourite uh, original characters. Um, I loved the sort of two issue arc where he first appeared. But again, he's you know he's brought back, and then nothing much is really done with him. I just find a lot of these issues around this point they're not terribly good. They're not terribly gripping. And then you've got you know the art problems again that's the last time i'm going to talk about the art <laughs> well they <laughs> they get worse and worse so issue 102 we get the surprise return of kiro except it's not a surprise because it's on the cover um so it turns out he's twist, oh, really? yeah. twists uh shock he's not dead i think the, yeah the cover kind of gives that away because it says kiro returns in big letters and has a picture of him and it's cool to have him back but then like he, he the decisions that he makes in this story make no sense for the character they only make sense in terms of duffy clearly being told what to do by lucasfilm mm. um, because uh, all of a sudden kiro apparently has no interest anymore in being trained as a jedi and he's just going to go back to iskalon and stay there to protect the rest of the fish people and then we never see him again yeah protect them from the from the uh the nagai the uh these uh yeah, but also, 
the biggest problem with this to me and and Cairo in particular is is that he obviously goes back to Iskalon, but he doesn't want Danny, who we've seen is, you know, absolutely distraught, depressed, you know, absolutely heartbroken over Kiro's death, which you know again doesn't really make. I say it doesn't make sense, but it doesn't it doesn't have most emotional resonance for us as the reader because we aren't you know we haven't been shown that relationship blossoming. But anyway, so she's heartbroken. But he doesn't want her to know. Kiro's now alive, but he tells Luke and Lando that he doesn't want her to know that he is, is has survived, because you know he can't be with her because he's got to stay on Iskalon uh, and, and fight the Nag guy. I mean, it's just a, it's really cliched. B, it, it makes him look like a bit of an asshole, and also he gets uh, Luke and Lando to keep his secret for him. So they're being uh, not very nice to Danny as well. So the whole thing is just... It makes no sense. For, uh, on It's it's its crappy. Uh, yeah. It's, and it just doesn't make any sense. What's particularly irritating, I shouldn't say that because everything about this is irritating, but one part of it that's irritating is that we get introduced out of nowhere in issue 95 to the idea that they're a couple. He's immediately written mm. out, and then when we bring him back here, uh, the fact that they were a couple is again, written out because now Duffy is teaming her with uh, Den for this storyline instead. And so it feels very contrived. Like she contrived is the word. Yeah. She can't, Danny can't know that Kira's alive because then it would lessen her hatred for Den, which is important for the relationship that Duffy wants them to have. (laughs) So she like goes through all these hoops to create this totally fabricated situation to have this relationship between these two characters. And yeah, this like I'm a big fan of Kiro and this issue was a huge disappointment. It was it was really not good. And and yeah. Nice artwork though. Selbusima is it, I think. Good artwork. But yeah, other than that, not good, not a great issue. The it's still better than what's gonna come after it. One oh three is is okay for me, but it's I feel like I've read some version of this story multiple times. This is the one where there's a, a, a guy who ends up sort of being oh, nursed, nursed back to health. and uh, uh, Yeah, Ty, Ty it's called, isn't it? Or Tay. Um, yeah. And it's, like, it's, it's, it's basically a, an issue that tries to sort of humanize the Nagai um, for us, you know. Uh, yeah, I think it's cliched. I, I, I think I wrote in my review thread about this issue that it, it seemed to me to be very similar to a lot of World War Two movies that I'd seen where they capture a German prisoner and actually it turns out that perhaps not all the Germans are quite the monsters we think they are, that sort of thing, you know? Yeah, a very tired sort of cliched. And um, then the, the sort of twist where he goes back to his people and because uh, they basically kill him because he's shown weakness. And I swear I've seen that that ending to this type of story more than once. Maybe this is the first time I encountered it. I don't know, but it just, right. the whole thing just, it's, it's competently done, but yeah, I mean, I, I've never thought that the ending was cliched in quite the same way as the rest of it was. I mean, this issue does introduce the toffs as well. Oh yeah, so we we have to talk about the toff. So as if it, as if it wasn't bad enough already. If, if it wasn't bad enough already, 
I know Duffy has said that the end of the series came on very suddenly, but the one thing that makes me wonder a little bit about this is that we barely have the Nagai established as a threat, and and we suddenly get in this issue the discovery that they're actually not just invading this galaxy, they're, they've been chased to this galaxy. They are refugees from another galaxy, and the Toph are the real bad guys that were chasing them out. And so all of a sudden, basically, the Star Wars series has nothing to do with any of the Star Wars characters or races. It's actually all about these two brand new races fighting each other. And from our, outside of, of the galaxy yeah, that we know. and our people yeah, just yeah. happen to be in the wrong place yeah. at the wrong time. The other thing is that the, with, with that issue, so with that issue, that's where the series stopped being a monthly comic book and it began to come out every two months. So you got, you know, it was going to be like six issues a year. And I, I don't really know why that was. You know, the obvious thing would be, well, maybe sales weren't that great. But actually, based on comments that I've read from Duffy, actually sales were, were still pretty strong. You know, they even at this sort of stage, you know, the, the book was selling a similar sort of figures to, say, Daredevil. You know, it wasn't selling like Amazing Spider-Man, but it was like a sort of a mid-level kind of superhero title. So it wasn't, really tanking so i don't know maybe it was because obviously we just had these issues that were all jumbled up because they weren't ready in time and there'd been a fill-in issue and stuff so maybe it was the decision to go you know publish an issue every two months just to give the creative team time to get back on track but whatever the reason that's that's the way it went down so after this we get this arc issue 104 i'm just gonna lump in these together 104 105 106 we get the haromi and then there's this yeah this is like the nagai tough war is the nagai tough war and then the haromi are there for like pages and pages and pages and pages of quote unquote humor uh And it's just dreadfully bad. All of Duffy's different races and characters are basically fighting amongst themselves. They completely take over the book. We don't care about any of them. We we no. frankly wish that the Death Star would show up and incinerate all of them. <laughs> um, because at this point, even the the brief sort of promise that characters like Den had is mostly been squandered with this nonsense. This 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 storyline is. Horrible. It might be the worst. It might be the worst. <laughs> well, the thing is, you've got this, as we've said, you've got this race that are set up to be the bad guys, these, you know, Nagai. And then you've got this other race that now come in, and now it turns out, you know, essentially, we're sort of asked to feel sorry for the Nagai in a way. Leia believes that, you know, peace with the Nagai is a possibility. The, the whole thing being that she's, I think it was in that issue, Ty, where they, where she, where she sort of found that wounded, um, Naga warrior she saw the toffs in action basically on that planet and she's warning the alliance that you know the toffs are you know more evil than anything she's ever seen which straight away you think like even more evil than the empire you mean you know the empire that destroyed your entire homeworld. you know i mean again it's like this whole sort of thing where we're told how evil and how much of a threat the toffs are but we're never shown it but and, also, uh, just I'm sorry to interrupt, but I want to. This is sort of important because we haven't mentioned it. Mm-hmm. Further undermining this is the fact that the Toph look like giant, fat, <laughs> 17th century French noblemen. <laughs> well, I connect. I mean, yeah, they're green skinned sort of space buccaneers, aren't they? Really? I mean, that that's really what they are. It's naff, 
I can sort of handle the pirate clothing, you know, the idea that they are, you know, proper space pirates, because, you know, we have seen that, you know, in, in the Marvel run before, you know, going right back to um, Crimson Jack and, and, and his first mate Jolly and all that, you know, in, in that very first uh, Roy Thomas story arc when they immediately after the, the original Star Wars film. So I can, yeah, I don't particularly like it, but I can be like, well, okay, we've seen that in Star Wars before. But the thing that really bugs me about them, apart from the fact that they're nowhere near as threatening as they need to be, but the thing that really bugs me about the whole pirate thing is they fly around in these kind of space galleons. You know, they're spaceships that look like pirate galleons, only made out of silver metal and, and flying through the vacuum of space. And that, to me... It's terrible. It's so bad. So, um, yeah, I talked about this with... Um, with Rogue Fort Raider in 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 the um, review thread, the Star Wars review thread, but I suspect that these were influenced by uh, Captain Harlock. You know, the uh, or, or this. Uh, I think there's a thing that was called Star Blazers, which were basically you know um, Japanese uh, anime cartoons. But but they both you know had like a futuristic take on antiquated naval imagery. That's that's the thing, and that's exactly what the Toffs have got. You know, they're dressed in they're futuristic, but they but they also look like you know ancient kind of mariners, you know, um, and their ships look like naval ships in the same way that Captain you know in Captain Harlock he had that sort of thing. So I imagine I don't know, but I imagine that's where Duffy's mind was. But it's a, it doesn't matter because it's a terrible idea anyway, and it certainly isn't a good fit for for Star Wars. Um, you know, the other thing, the other thing with this is going back to the Nagai. It really seems completely implausible that there would be any kind of common ground between them and the Alliance. You know, if we accept, okay, that the Toffs are this, you know, terrible threat, which is frankly hard to believe. But if we accept that and the Alliance of Free Planets now has to form, an, uh, you know, like a, a union or an allegiance with the Nagai, what about all the things that the Nagai have done you know they've invaded numerous worlds just because one group is evil doesn't mean that you know the whole idea here seems to be the enemy of my enemy is my friend but that's not necessarily true they're both evil so right that, that's the thing you know all the bad things they've done so I think I was saying they've invaded numerous worlds you know they've brought a lot of suffering presumably to, to the people of the galaxy you know on all these various planets and suddenly we're supposed to sort of you know, A, accept that the Alliance is going to side with them and B, that we should almost feel sorry for them because they're sort of, they're like refugees from their own, you know, being from their own galaxy, being chased into the Star Wars galaxy by the Toffs, who are, you know, frankly laughable as a threat. Um, and on top of that, on top of all of that badness that's going on in this in this issue is uh, or this period is that you've got the uh, the Hiromi which are these terrible bug-like creatures which I think I thoroughly dissed earlier they're all brought back into it as well and you know a load of Zeltrons and there really is you know all of the people we really care about in the Star Wars universe are just sort of pushed out of the picture and I know that's not Duffy's fault because you know she was in a, a a tough situation she couldn't do anything with these characters because of what Lucasfilm was saying but still it's it's bad. bad. The Hiromi in, in this storyline, there are sequences that are multiple pages of just them talking to each other. It's it's terrible. It's terrible. Well, and you've got that awful subplot as well about them seemingly discovering their courage. 
you know, I mean, I'm skipping ahead an issue or two here. But, oh, no, but, please. Um... <laughs> but, but again, you know, it seems like a complete character reversal. You know, I mean, I hate the Hiromi, but, but let's just, you know, okay, let's put that aside for a moment. They've been established as this sort of bumbling, cowardly, you know, pretty useless race, really. And that's fine. If that's what they're established as, then that's what they are. And now suddenly Duffy's sort of backtracking and we're supposed to sort of think, you know, because I think they even take down like a load of toffs and stuff like that. And we've just been told that the toffs are this, you know, terrible threat, apparently even worse than the Empire or something. And then, you know, it's just the whole thing's a mess at this point. <laughs> yeah. Now that mess comes to an abrupt end with issue 107, which is so weird. I think we need to talk a little bit about it because parachuting in out of nowhere is Will Sportatio to do the artwork. And we get this crazy story that makes no sense where all of a sudden we've skipped ahead. Like we basically get to Duffy's end game because she doesn't, the series just ends suddenly. So now with no real explanation, the Alliance and the Nagai are like full on partners. They're all working together. Like Den's part of the gang and Luke looks like Rambo. He's running around shirtless with like a bandana tied around his head. And he's carrying a giant machine gun. No force. No, who needs the force and lightsabers when you can be Rambo and just, and like Bay is back and there's all this like page after page of exposition because they're trying to explain all the crazy character stuff that we skipped over to get them to this incomprehensible point and then there's like some fighting in the series ends yeah i sort of feel that we'll probably be talking about this for a, a good half an hour or something but anyway because <laughs> it's that bad but it also is it's kind of fascinating as well in a bad way <laughs> you know? yeah going back to the lucas rambo thing um i mean obviously the rambo films were really big at this point you know rambo first blood part two was the big the really big sort of box office hit that had come out uh, almost exactly around this time i think and i just sort of wonder really what was going on you know was this supposed to be the start of a new kind of a sort of action hero sort of direction for luke within the you know because he's it's not just the fact that he's suddenly massively buff and really you know he's got huge muscles everywhere and he's got the um you know he's got the headband like rambo wears but he also carries like a huge blaster you know that like blaster rifle very much like that you know, that classic Rambo pose with his shirt off, with the big, you know. Uh, and, of course, Luke is completely shirtless. But... The opening splash page is basically him in the classic Rambo pose. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right, more or less, yeah. But, but it's doubly weird because, you know, we know from things that Duffy has said that it, when the end came for the series, it came quick because she'd already started writing a completely different issue. You know, obviously that issue was not meant to be the last one. And she had to go back. Cynthia Martin had to go back and they had to sort of basically cobble that issue together right, you know, um, on the fly in a way. And it, there's all kind, as you were saying, with the the masses of exposition in the narration boxes and stuff like that. You know, she's tying herself in knots, trying to sort of gather up all the loose threads and give them some kind of an ending you know it's like the issue was more or less redrawn knowing full well that it was the last issue so like why suddenly make luke look so different it doesn't really make a lot of sense you know they, they kind of knew it wasn't the beginning of a new direction where they were going to try and turn it into a sort of almost like a rambo tie and you know star wars on steroids it, it, it's interesting actually there's a, there was a solicitation in 
It was probably in one of those sorts of things like Marvel Age. The original solicitation for issue 107 was supposed to be that Luke was on some you know frontier world and he was being hunted by a number of different assassins and that they were all for whatever reason were intent on becoming known as you know the man who killed this legendary jedi knight luke skywalker that was what was supposed to be that was the story that they were working on well that sounds a lot a lot better than what we actually got (laughs) but again it also sounds like a bit of a sort of a fill-in issue it doesn't really seem to be anything to do with the the current story about this sort of nagai toff war so that in itself is kind of weird you know and actually it's sort of interesting that again in interviews and stuff that i've read duffy has sort of elaborated on what her long-term plans for the series were yeah you know, had it not ended you know what she would have what she would have done she had a lot more sort of you know plans with bay particularly uh he was going to become a much more sort of important figure in the uh you know in it but he was also I think he was supposed to become like more and more of a tragic sort of figure. Because if you remember, Bay's heritage was half Karelian, but half Nagai. Um, and for some reason, they made him a giant, which I yeah. <laughs> don't really understand. But It made him look neither like a Karelian or a Nagai. Uh, Danny was going to essentially destroy or attack and destroy the Toph fleet in a kamikaze attack. So she was going to die. You know, she was so depressed and torn apart by everything that Den Shiva had done to her and obviously you know Kiro her beloved was dead although we the readers knew that he wasn't which again you know is like okay so she's going to die she's going to be killed off uh, and again it makes Kiro's thing of earlier saying that you know that he he uh, didn't want Danny to know he was alive seem even worse and then by association it's even worse that Luke and Lando both kept that secret that was roughly where she was going with the series. And of course, as I say, there was also that thing with Luke. It was hinted at in the letters pages in those last few issues that he was, you know, going to have some kind of romance and that somehow... It would somehow be with an Iskalonian. It's weird because there really aren't any other characters on Iskalon. I guess there's one, I forget the name of the, the character who leads the school, but there are aren't really any other established Iskalonians for him to have a romance with. Maybe they were hinting that he and Kira were actually going to get together. That would probably, I'm well, guessing Lucasfilm that would, seem... would probably not allow that. <laughs> well, given the time frame, if it was today or something, yeah, I would say, well, obviously, but given the time frame, I don't think Marvel would have been, and I certainly don't think that Lucasfilm would have been okay with that either, you know, with their, their lead character sort of, you know, essentially having a, a, you know, a gay relationship with this Iskalonian. So I don't, you know, I I don't think that that was realistic where it was going, where it was going, but, you know, but let's, you know, let's not forget, we'd seen the Kiro and Danny romance come out of nowhere, you know, could have very easily seen a, you know, space Rambo and fish person relationship come out of nowhere as well. Unfortunately that never happened, but uh, in terms of what did happen, well, I mean, they basically tie it all up, don't they? I mean, but I think this setup for this is basically that uh, it's, it's an assassination thing, isn't it? They're on an assassination kind of mission that the 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 king of the Toffs is on this planet. I'd have to look up his name, but he's basically like the monarch and absolute ruler of the Toffs, and he's on this planet. And the Nagai and the Alliance, including all our favorite characters, have, as you say, teamed up, and they're going to sort of, you know... And then... You know, they quickly bring in 
Lumiel or Lumiere again, and um, uh, and she's you know seemingly killed. I think by Bay. Is that right? Is that uh, that sounds right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, I'm sort of struggling to. Remember. I mean, I just read this for the podcast, and I don't really remember what happened either because. Once you have that image of shirtless Rambo Luke in your mind, it's hard to focus on anything else. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But yeah, anyway, it's just uh, it, the whole thing is a real mess, really. Yeah. Uh, it's it's uh, a it's kind of a sad ending the to the series. Yes, yeah. But even the front cover's terrible. Oh, you yeah, know, it's that, terrible. It is it's bad. You know, really bad art. And, and uh, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it's it would have been really nice. I've always thought. You know, you know, Tom Palmer every now and again did these really lovely painted covers for the series. It would have been wonderful. I mean, you know, if he could have done the very last issue. There's the question of why the series ended, because the story I've heard is that even though sales are OK, Marvel is just so tired of all the restrictions Lucasfilm was putting on them that it just wasn't worth the headache to continue publishing it. Yeah, I mean, it's fine for you not to be that clear on what on what actually happened because I don't know that Duffy is, you know, is particularly clear on it. I mean, she's given some quite sort of conflicting versions of the story, I suppose, over the years. I mean, one of the first things I read about it was back in the eighties in some, I think it might've been in Starlog magazine or something. And she essentially said there that it was the restrictions from Lucasfilm that affects effectively is served to cancel the book. She didn't mention anything about sales. You know, they were, it got to the point where she was submitting stuff and that they wouldn't allow her to, to do this or do that with the characters. And as you said earlier, even her own characters were sort of subject to that. And she seems to sort of suggest then, and she has said this since as well, you know, that this was, but essentially she seems to sort of say that it was really that Marvel got the impression really that Lucasfilm didn't really want there to be a Star Wars comic book on the shelves anymore. And so they just were like, well, okay, you know, let's just finish. I, I'm not sure I really believe that entirely, but that I'm prepared to believe that that's part thing. But then I've also read interviews much more recently, um, you know, with interviews that are not even 10 years old or whatever, of her talking about it on various Star Wars fan websites or whatever. Uh, and she's absolutely categorically said that it was not, you know, Lucasfilm who wanted to end the series and it was marvel itself and that they had decided to spend more time on superheroes and they didn't want to do they didn't want to do star wars anymore i i think duffy loved the i mean we've spoken about this before she was a long time um star wars fan you know she loved writing the series i think she'd gone off the boil personally that's only my opinion and then she was that was further hampered by all the interference from lucasfilm or whatever but she certainly had a lot of ideas that you know, it could have easily gone on another couple of years, probably. And like I say to you, you know, you know, I've heard that it was selling better than a lot of the mid-range superhero books. But of course, this was at a time as well when in fandom, you know, Star Wars was really waning. You know, people weren't that interested in it. And it was the beginning of that long sort of dark period before, you know, between then the mid 80s and the early 90s when interest in Star Wars started to be revived a little bit by the publication of the novels by timothy zahn there's about a four or five year period there in the late 80s when you know sort of star wars kind of went into hibernation and wasn't really that popular so i don't know i don't know it's it's difficult to sort of know exactly why it came and it's also doubly doubly strange i suppose that the ending came so quickly 
that they were already halfway through writing and drawing issue 107 when the end came. So it's like, where did that end come from? You know, who was it? Was it Lucasfilm? Was it Marvel? And why did they do that if it was selling, still selling that well? You mentioned the sort of upsurge uh, in interest in Star Wars that took place in the early 90s. You know, after this series ended, the comic book version of Star Wars was dormant for a number of years. But after the Star Wars sort of started gaining interest again in the early 90s, it was eventually brought back by Dark Horse. And they had a very successful uh, run of Star Wars comics that lasted for many, many, many years that had a completely different continuity than the Marvel series. That's right. Although, interestingly, Dark Empire, which was the very first Dark Horse comic, you know, that was that was the very first post-Marvel run comics that appeared in, I don't know, I'm going to say 1991. It was around about that time. But that was initially solicited as being published by Marvel. Oh, yeah, by Marvel. So Marvel still had the license for Star Wars even as late as the as the early 1990s and very quickly that obviously changed and it was handed over to dark horse so again it makes me think well it, it, you know was it marvel that decided to stop it or was it lucasfilm that just actually put their foot down and said we don't want this published anymore i have a feeling that jim shooter is probably the only person that knows and even if he said the answer, it would be hard to tell whether it was true or not. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, Marvel has the rights now that they're, that everyone's part of the Disney family. Mm, but right. when we look back at the original Marvel Star Wars run, what, what do you think the overall legacy of the series is? Uh, the legacy for me, personally, is that I think, I think these are some of the best comics some of the best Star Wars comics that were ever published. I think yeah, I liked a lot of the Dark Horse stuff. I collected and still have in my collection an awful lot of it. And a lot of it was very, very good. I'm less enamored with the new Marvel run. I think the new Marvel run, I've not read all of it. You know, and people tell me that there are mini series and stuff that have shot off from the main, main series that are well worth checking out. But the main series, after a couple of issues, I just thought I can't reconcile what I'm reading with the characters that I know and love. It just seems very out of whack, you know, and I'm I'm old enough and jaded enough not to buy into the Lucasfilm or sorry, the Disney hype that these comics are now 100 percent canon. You know, you can believe everything you read because I've already seen, you know, the Marvel run accepted as kind of expanded universe canon and then thrown out. And replaced by the Dark Horse canon, and then now that's been thrown out, and it's replaced by the Disney canon. And I think overall, the Star Wars Marvel series, the original Marvel series, I think people are sort of kinder towards it now than they were, say, ten or fifteen years ago. I think, I think that for a long time, once the interest in Star Wars came back in the nineties, and you had, you know, the special editions come out, and you had the the prequel trilogy and all that sort of thing. I think the sort of consensus amongst a lot of Star Wars fans was a bit like the Ewoks. It was a bit like, well, it's childish and it's not really in keeping with the thing. And it's, uh, which I think is rubbish. I think, I think actually, you know, at its best, I think Marvel's first Star Wars series had some excellent stories, great characters, some amazing artwork. And as we've discussed, you know, at times, it really did examine some fairly sort of sophisticated or sort of mature kind of themes. Um, you know, and as I, as I think I've said before, for us fans, if you were a fan of Star Wars 
in the 70s and the 80s, you know, the comic was Star Wars. You know, the Marvel comic, that was Star Wars. You know, sure, you'd go and see the films at the cinema, but they weren't, you didn't have a, a home video recorder. You know, there was no, they weren't out on VHS. The, the, it would be another few years before they were even shown on TV. Um, in, in terms of your sort of, you know, weekly or monthly kind of fix of, of, you know, that galaxy far, far away, the Marvel comic was it. That was Star Wars. And I, yeah, I think it's great. I think they're great comics. I think it's a great series, you know, but, you know, not everybody would agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the series, I will just say, I think the series was uneven at times and it had a horrible end, a messy end, you know, but, but at its best, and a lot of it was, was very good, but at its best, yeah, I think it was, um, I think it was great. You know, these are some of my favorite comics of all time. That's almost it for this episode of the Classic Comics Forum podcast. I do have one little uh, epilogue that I wanted to add on here. In 2019, shortly after we finished recording these, Marvel put out a special 108th issue of Star Wars. It was part of Marvel's 80th anniversary celebration where they did a new issue of a bunch of cancelled old classic series. And Star Wars number 108 is pretty interesting. They somehow brought back Valance the Hunter, one of the great characters from the original series who died way back in issue 29. And also of, of interest for those who've listened to this whole podcast series the story in star wars number 108 is a basically picks up from the events of star wars number 50 you may remember we talked about how the at the end of that dominia tag was still around and we lamented the fact that they never picked up on that particularly joe duffy because she picked up on so many other older characters well dominia is back in star wars 108 valance is back and the story sort of wraps up some of the events from that star wars issue number 50 none of the classic marvel star wars creators worked on issue 108 there were some who from the dark horse run actually like jan dersima who worked on issue 108. The only creator from the original Marvel run that I believe was involved was there was a variant cover um, by Walt Simonson. So that's cool. Uh, so that's just a, a, little, a little epilogue to this whole experience. Once again, I'd like to thank The Confessor for joining me for these uh, episodes. I really appreciate everyone's patience. I appreciate you listening to all these episodes. I assume if you've gotten through all six of these that you also love Star Wars. So thanks for joining us in our celebration of Star Wars and celebration of the Marvel Star Wars series in particular. So thanks again. As always, you can visit us at classiccomics.org to join in the conversation. And I'll see you next time with something brand new that doesn't have anything to do with Star Wars. See you then.